Bibles open this morning. We're covering a lot of ground today. Acts chapter 21 through 23. We're coming to the end of our series in the book of Acts. We have this week and the next two weeks in these last uh, chapters of the book. And this is a section of Acts that I think we can really benefit from taking bigger chunks. But you'll want to be looking down in your Bibles at these. So Acts 21 to 23. If uh, you have the church Bible in front of you, it's page 900. 88, I believe, on the church Bibles, and it's a great passage for us. So let's open our hearts to the Lord and ask him to speak to us. Lord, whatever was written in the scriptures was written for our encouragement so that through endurance we might have hope. And so I pray that the words that you have written here in Acts 21 through 23 would Move us to endure and give us fresh courage to live for you no matter what it costs. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the limits to human endurance? Back on November 4th, 2018, Ross Edgley became the first person to swim around Great Britain, 2,883 kilometers, averaging 12 hours of swimming a day for 157 days in a row. He burned 502,219 calories. Amazing. (laughs) Or listen to this. Four hours, 50 minutes, and eight seconds, about the same time it takes most of us to escape Ikea, is all it took for U.S. ultra runner Jim Walmsley to set a new 50-mile record on May 4th, 2019. He ran for 50 miles, averaging 5 minutes, 48 seconds per mile. And I was pretty proud of myself for doing 7 miles on Thursday, even though I had to get in bed before 9 p.m. to recover. (laughs) Have you ever wondered, what are the limits to my endurance? How much more... Can I take? It's a question some of our deacons are probably going to have to ask from time to time. Because as they serve in this ministry, they are walking the way Jesus walked. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's a costly way to live, offering yourself in service to Jesus and his people. It requires an endurance That is superhuman. One of our new deacons told me they've already sensed what seems to be an intensified amount of spiritual resistance since they assumed this role. Maybe today you're feeling tired and weary, battered and bruised by the spiritual resistance that's involved in being a follower of Jesus. You want to walk as Jesus walked, but you're wondering if you've got the strength to keep on going. You feel like you're hitting the limits of what you can take. Well, here in the book of Acts, chapters 21 through 23, the Apostle Paul is in a really hard stretch. It's not the end of his life's journey, but the end is getting closer. And if you think of Paul's life like a marathon, he's at about mile 18 right now. This is where the adrenaline is low, the sweat is soaking you from head to toe, the pavement feels like nails, every sinew in your body is throbbing, and it aches to take the next breath. 
you wonder if you're going to make it another step, let alone eight more miles to the finish line. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. And back in chapter 19, verse 21, we read that Paul had a conviction from the Holy Spirit that he must go to Jerusalem. And after he had gone back to Jerusalem, then he must take the gospel to Rome. And last week in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, we heard how he told the elders at the church in Ephesus, now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But here's the key. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul knows that hardship awaits him, but he wants to finish well. So just like Jesus kept telling his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and there he would suffer, Paul is now saying the same thing. He's following the way of Jesus, and he's going to experience a lot of what Jesus experienced when he was in Jerusalem. I remember when I was a child singing songs like, Oh, to be like the blessed Redeemer, or to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. But then you start following Jesus and discover what that really means. You hear him calling you to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And sometimes you wonder, what will that take? Will I make it? What are the limits to my endurance? In chapter 21, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes the journey Paul and his companions made on their way to Jerusalem. And he tells us that they arrived at the city of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon. And look at verse 4 of chapter 21. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And that should make us pause. How can it be in chapter 20, verse 22, the Spirit was compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, and now it says that through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Surely the Holy Spirit isn't contradicting himself here. The better way to understand this is that the Spirit was telling Paul and the disciples the same thing, that it was going to be a hard place for Paul to be, that he was going to experience great tribulation in Jerusalem. Same message from the Spirit. But the disciples, because of their care and concern for Paul, interpreted this to mean that Paul should not go there. Just like my parents might urge me not to go certain places on missions trips because they're afraid of the dangers that might await me there. It raises a question for us. What is our tolerance for risk in the Christian life? Are we willing to expose ourselves to danger for the cause of Christ? Do we know how to follow what God is leading us to do with or without the approval of our friends and those who love us? The Bible never tells us we should be reckless. But the Bible also doesn't encourage us to be so security 
conscious that we avoid, that we avoid danger at all costs. The Bible doesn't tell us to ignore the counsel of our friends, but at the same time, the Bible always urges us to fear the Lord and to listen to his guidance above all. So in verses 5 through 9, we see Paul continuing on his journey, and his friends walk with him to the outskirts of the city, and on the beach, they kneel down and pray with him and say goodbye as he boards the ship. They travel down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, stopping in Caesarea, where they enter the house of Philip, the evangelist, who has four daughters who have the gift of prophecy. And then Paul is warned again, only this time a prophet is involved, and he acts out his prophecy in an unforgettable manner. Look at verse 10. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. I remember 12 years ago when Kate and I were faced with the decision whether to have her lung removed. The cancer was stage four. We had about two weeks to decide. We had two options, a lifetime of chemotherapy or the removal of a lung. High risk, no promises about what life would be like after the surgery or even if she would survive. And most people were sensitive enough not to offer unsolicited advice. But there were a few who ventured into that realm. I remember someone calling me a week before the surgery pleading with me to cancel it because they said it would destroy any quality of life that she had. And they meant well. But I was greatly shaken by that phone call. So I can feel for Paul here. The stakes are high. If he goes... He knows he's going to need superhuman endurance. Everyone who loves him, including Luke, who's writing this, is telling him, don't go, Paul. I really admire his resolve. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. And on they went. At first, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Paul and his companions were warmly welcomed by the followers of Jesus. Then, in verse 18, Paul wisely went to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was an influential leader among the Jewish believers. And verse 19 says that Paul reported in detail what God had done through his ministry among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, verse 20 says, they glorified God. So these Jewish Christians are really grateful for how the gospel is spreading to the Gentiles. But immediately, something comes up 
that can be a source of fatigue for Christians, especially Christians who are in leadership, in ministry. I'm talking about dealing with the suspicions and the misunderstandings that emerge among fellow believers. That's hard. That's wearying. And here's the thing, if we're going to endure in the long road of following Jesus, we've got to prepare ourselves to deal with suspicions and with misunderstandings that creep up among us. Look at how it unfolds in verse 20. After glorifying God for how the word is spreading among the Gentiles, they say, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear you've come. Do you enjoy having people tell you what other people are saying about you behind your back? Do you enjoy being misunderstood and to be told things that people are saying that simply are not accurate. Paul was certainly preaching that all people must come to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone and that you cannot add obedience to the law of Moses as a requirement for being accepted by God. Paul firmly taught that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be justified by God. It was through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But Paul was never teaching that Jewish believers needed to abandon their Jewish customs and become like Gentiles either. He respected the consciences of Jewish believers and their customs. And he was fine with them retaining their customs as long as they didn't obscure or compromise the gospel. So the suspicions and the rumors about Paul are inaccurate. And if Paul was not a humble man... This would have been high time for him to become rigid and defensive and indignant. How dare they represent me falsely like that? And instead, Paul shows grace and flexibility. He does all he can to avoid giving offense to people so that nothing would hinder them from experiencing the grace of God in the gospel. So in verse 23, look at what the leaders in Jerusalem urge Paul to do. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. This is probably a Nazarite vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. And this wasn't just like a a barber's cut here. This was going to be expensive. This involved temple fees. And then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. And in his humility, in his zeal for the gospel, Paul has no trouble complying with this request. If they would have told Paul to compromise the gospel message, he would have refused. But they remind Paul in verse 25 of the letter they wrote to the Gentile believers back in Acts 15 that Patrick preached on a few weeks ago. And that letter didn't require them to follow Jewish customs in order to be accepted by the church. So this was not an issue where the gospel was at stake. And that means Paul has no problem taking this vow and going into the temple and purifying himself along with these four men. 
It's an application of the gospel principle that Paul describes back in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, where he says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. So what's the main thing Paul cares about here? Winning people to Jesus. He will never compromise the message of the gospel, but he will always be flexible in any way he possibly can to help people grasp the gospel of God's grace. And let's think for a moment about the importance of this principle for us. We need to be absolutely firm and unbending in the proclamation of the gospel. We cannot compromise that. But we should be as flexible as we possibly can about our customs and our traditions and about secondary matters if the gospel's not at stake. And sometimes we can get this the other way around. Sometimes we become very firm, very inflexible about our customs and our traditions, and we become very timid and passive about guarding and defending and spreading the truth of the gospel. Paul is showing us here how a servant of the gospel can and should flex all the time so as to avoid unnecessary controversy and needless offense. But here's where the opposition in Paul's life really starts to pick up. Just when you think, how much more can this man take? He has suffered so much already. At that very moment, the limits of his endurance are going to be tested even more. It doesn't get easier. It gets much harder for the Apostle Paul. Someone has written, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. And that's what God is going to be doing in the apostle's life. He keeps hammering, and he keeps sending blows that hurt him, and he bends him with trial upon trial. And as we watch Paul continue to endure and continue to stand up to all this resistance, we can learn how we can grow in courage, how we can keep on pressing on, even when the resistance in our life gets more and more intense, when we feel like we're coming to the limits of what we can take. 
The first hopeless situation is in verses 27 through 36 of chapter 21. Some Jews from the province of Asia see Paul in the temple, and they stir up the whole crowd and seize him. And they make a false accusation against him in verse 28, shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law in this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. False. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So a mob mentality takes over. The whole city is stirred up. The people rush together. They seize Paul. They drag him out of the temple, and the gates are shut, and they start trying to beat Paul to death. In verse 31, the commander of the Roman regiment hears that the whole city of Jerusalem is in chaos over this, and with his soldiers, he runs down into the midst of the mob, and he breaks it up, and he takes Paul into custody, and he orders him to be bound with two chains. He asks him, who are you and what have you done? But there is such an uproar among the crowd that he can't even make out anything sensible. So he orders Paul to be taken into the barracks and look at verses 35 and 36. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence in the crowd. Just imagine this. He's been beaten almost into a pulp, and now he's being carried by these soldiers because of the violence of the crowd with all the people yelling, get rid of him, away with this man. Who else has heard mobs of people in Jerusalem yelling, away with this man, get rid of him, crucify him. But look at how Paul reacts. He's been nearly beaten to death but he's completely calm and composed. As they're carrying him into the barracks, Paul asks, asks the commander, am I allowed to say something? And he's very clever here because he speaks Greek to the commander, which is the language of culture and civilization. The commander realizes, hmm, maybe this guy is not who I thought he was. And he says to Paul in verse 37, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? He's been thinking that Paul is some Egyptian terrorist. In the same way that today, a growing number of people in our culture assume that Christians aren't only odd, we're not only a nuisance, but we're a menace to society that we are out to harm society and impose our views on other people and rip apart the fabric of our culture. That's the way many people view Christians today. Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. And permission is given. And Paul motions with his hand an orator's gesture that commands such attention, a great hush comes over the crowd. 
And then he starts to speak to all of them in Aramaic, which was another shrewd move because here in Jerusalem are people from all kinds of different nations and languages gathering in this place. But Aramaic was the one language that all of them knew that they could use to speak to one another. You see how in a few seconds, Paul goes from being beaten to an inch of his life to taking total command over this crowd. He has tremendous poise in the face of hostility. And he starts by identifying with his audience in verses 3, 3 through 5 of chapter 22. He speaks of his impeccable credentials as a Jew, brought up in this city of Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of our ancestral law. And he speaks of how zealous he was for following the law of God. What he's doing here is he's saying to this enraged crowd, look, I understand how you think. I once was in your shoes. I used to think the same way you think. But then something happened that turned his life upside down. Look at how Paul tells his testimony, beginning at verse 6 of chapter 22. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And there it is. The decisive encounter that turned Paul's life upside down. And he never forgot it. He never tired of telling people about it. Even though he was such a great Jew, educated by the best Jewish teachers, so strict about obeying the law of Moses, there came a time in Paul's life when he realized, I am a sinner, just like everyone else. And I need the Lord Jesus Christ to wash away my sins. And Paul looked away from himself and his own performance, and he looked to Jesus, and he called on the name of Jesus, and he publicly showed his union with Christ by identifying with him in baptism, and his sins were washed away. And listen, friends, that is why Paul is so courageous. 
That is why there are no limits to what he will endure. He never stops being amazed at the grace that God has shown him through Jesus. This is the one thing when he's about to die and when he's being carried by soldiers, this is the one thing he wants to speak to the crowd. He wants to tell them what God has done for him through Jesus. He wants to tell them how Jesus has changed his life. That's why he's so courageous. He talks in verses 19 and 20 about how viciously he persecuted the church. And in verse 20, he remembers Stephen. When the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He never forgets how wickedly he sinned against the Lord and against his church. But now that the Lord has had mercy on him, Paul is ready to give his life for Jesus. Courage does not come from looking within ourselves. Courage does not come by saying, I can handle this. Courage is not the absence of fear. If there wasn't any fear, there wouldn't be any need for courage. Courage is doing the right thing in the face of our fears. And courage comes when we look outside ourselves to the Savior who has shown mercy on us. He's the one who renews our strength and gives us endurance. That brings us to the first lesson this morning. If you feel like you can't take any more pressure... If you feel like the resistance in following Jesus is getting really strong in your life and you've had all you can take, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Remember what he has done for you. Remember how he has washed away your sins. And tell someone else about it. Something happens when we tell other people about Jesus and what he's done. Our courage, our strength, is renewed in the process. It puts fresh wind in our sails. It encourages our hearts. Remember what Jesus has done for you and tell someone else. Well, after testifying to what Jesus had done for him, Paul goes on in verse 21 to describe what Jesus commissioned him to do. He said to me, go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they've been listening up to this point but they can't take it anymore now. At this point, their prejudice comes to the surface. They don't want the good news going to the Gentiles, and this leads to a second hopeless situation for the Apostle Paul in verse 22. They listen to him up to this point. Then they raise their voices shouting, Wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live just like they did. With Jesus. They're yelling and flinging their garments and throwing dust in the air just like they did when they were about to stone Stephen. And the commander orders that Paul be brought into the barracks to be interrogated with the scourge, the whip that tears the flesh off your back while everyone's shouting against him because he wants to discover what has he done. And just as they're stretching him out to be scourged, Paul speaks up. Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? And this is news to them. And the centurion goes to the commander and he asks him, what are we going to do now? And in verse 27, the commander comes and says to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. 
The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had bound him. He had broken the law. Do you remember when Jesus told his disciples, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to drag you off. They're going to put you in chains for the sake of my name. And you must make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. Don't premeditate how you're going to answer them. Because I will give you such words and such wisdom that none of their adversaries will be able to resist or contradict you. That's what Jesus told his disciples. And that's what I see happening here right now in the life of Paul. He hasn't had time to think about what he's going to say. It's, it's chaos. But right when he's about to be scourged, he remembers, I should bring up the fact that I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> I've, got a, I, I've got credentials here that could turn this around. And just as Jesus said, not a hair from your heads will perish, Paul walks away from this unhurt. That brings us to the second lesson this morning. When we feel like we've had all we can take, when we've reached the limit of our endurance, we can re remember from the example of Paul and from the words of Jesus that no one can touch us without the Lord's permission. No trial can befall us that he does not allow. He is sovereign over all the details of our lives, and he will take care of us in the time of need. And that leads to a third hopeless situation. Just like in the trials of Jesus, Paul gets sent back and forth between the religious authorities to the civil authorities. And just like in Jesus' trial, it's the civil authorities who seem a little more reasonable. It's the religious authorities who are out of their minds. And so they bring Paul before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 23, verse 1, he begins by claiming to have lived all his life with a good conscience before God. And that infuriates the high priest who orders that Paul be struck in the mouth. And that hurt. And Paul is angry that that happened to him because that was not, that's not a just way to treat someone who's rising to their defense in trial. If that happened in our courts, you would hear about it in the news. And Paul looks at the high priest, and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, which actually is going to happen decades later. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? struck? And the bystanders are aghast that Paul has the temerity to rebuke the high priest. And Paul says, I'm sorry, I didn't realize he was the high priest. But that's when Paul turns the tables and focuses on an issue that he knows will divide the Sanhedrin against itself. Just like Jesus said, I'll give you the words you need when you're on trial. Verse 6, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And you know the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. 
And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection in neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. And so the Pharisees stood up and started defending Paul. First they wanted him dead, now they want him on their side against the Sadducees in verse 9. And they start this dispute amongst themselves. It's so violent, the commander fears that Paul might be torn apart by them. So he takes Paul away and puts him back into the barracks. And that's when something beautiful happens. That night, Jesus comes. Jesus stands by Paul in that prison. And look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is also necessary for you to testify in Rome. Paul, you're going to make it to the end of your journey. You're going to get to Rome. Jesus says it. And Paul never forgot what happened that night for the rest of his life. He describes it in the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy. Look what it says. At my first offense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember this when you're wondering, how am I going to keep on going? How am I going to face another day of resistance and trial? Jesus is with you. Jesus stands with you to strengthen you. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will bring you safe to his heavenly kingdom. That's our third lesson. Someone asked me how I was doing recently. I said, well, there's been some challenges. But I didn't sign up for a picnic. And this person wrote back, no, you didn't. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We need to remember that. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus stands with us to strengthen us so that we can fulfill all that he has given us to do no matter how hard it gets. And just when you think it couldn't get any harder for Paul, it does. There's one last hopeless situation in chapter 23. Beginning at verse 12. Now more than 40 men form a conspiracy. They bind themselves under oath that we will not eat or drink until we have killed Paul. That's how serious they are. They're going to go hungry. They're going to make sure he's dead. They get the chief priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin to conspire with them in this plot. Everyone's against him. And this is the only time in the whole Bible that we hear anything about Paul's family. We learn that he has a sister. And she has a son. And here Paul's nephew finds out about this plot and he urgently comes to his rescue. He tells the commander, you cannot let my uncle Paul go to the Sanhedrin next day because he will be assassinated along the way. 
So in verse 23, the Roman commander, while all the Jews are against Paul, the Roman commander summons his centurions and gets 200 soldiers, 70 cavalry, and 200 spearmen to form a protective envoy around Paul. And they usher him out of Jerusalem and bring him to Caesarea in the middle of the night. He's saved by the skin of his teeth. He's rescued from the lion's mouth. He's brought safely out of Jerusalem, and he will soon be on his way to Rome, where he will finish his course and the ministry, ministry he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And that brings us to the last lesson this morning, the overarching lesson, I think, of this whole passage. And it's a quote from the evangelist George Whitfield. We are immortal till our work on earth is done. So do not fear. Do not worry about how much more can I handle? How much more can I take? The Lord is with you wherever you go and will stand by you, and he will not allow any trial to befall you outside of his sovereign hand. He's working all of this out for his purposes and for his glory. And you are immortal till your work on earth is done. With the Lord standing by you to strengthen you and protect you, there is no limit to what you can endure because you have his strength to fill you in your weakness. A few weeks ago, Joe Jones told us about John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides who lost his wife and children and labored on in the midst of great danger for decades to make Jesus known in that South Pacific island. And this is the truth that puts steel in his nerves and iron in his veins. Surrounded by a mob of cannibals who thirsted for his blood, John Patton wrote, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. So, Lord, for all who are weary in the journey and feeling as if we have no strength left, I pray that the Apostle Paul's example and the way you strengthened him by your grace would put fresh wind in our sails and courage in our hearts to persevere. We believe you are too wise and too loving to make a mistake in any trial you bring into our lives. So we look to you for help. We struggle on in your work. And we trust your spirit to fill us with all the strength we need until your work on earth through us is done. For the glory of Jesus, in our weakness, please make us strong, we pray. Amen.